Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over it. This fellow Ronaldo is a cop. Boom, 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 it follows. Boom, 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 it yellow card. Nah, it's actually boring, sir. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you surely man? <laughs> the Olympic Games may be over, but the quadrennial comparison between humble, virtuous Olympians and diving, whining, snivelling, toad footballers is just getting started. Owen Ken and Murphy here at the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Hello, Owen. Matthew Syed in the Times of London, I'm thinking of here. He says uh, he reckons Premier League footballers could learn a thing or two from the Olympians about respect. Uh. Take judo where the fighters bow to each other at the conclusion of every bout. The moment when Nicky Hamblin of New Zealand stopped to assist America's Abby D'Agostino as they fell to the ground in the 5,000 metre heat. The embrace between Andy Murray and Juan Martin Del Potro after the tennis final. And yes, Syed accepts there have been spats, disagreements and bad blood but these have been the exception rather than the rule. And football, the equation is reversed. Disrespect is the norm. Instances of humanity are rare. The handshake before the match is perfunctory and shirt swapping at the final whistle has long lacked the dignity associated. The handshake before the match is perfunctory. With the famous exchange between Pelé and Bobby Moore. What is that handshake meant to be? Are you meant to clasp each other's hands and stare into each other's eyes like rub noses? Uh, no, I think... Uh, I think perfunctory. I think they're supposed to uh, ask about each other's kids. You, know, yeah. you could take about 15 minutes. Yeah. You know, particularly if someone goes back to their old club. You're, you're keeping well. It's a strange one to pick, actually, because of, if there's any criticism of footballers that, that can be level, they're too friendly with each other before games and after. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's non-stop chats <laughs> some of the time. The judo was a weird one to begin with as well, because the only thing I remember about the Olympic judo was the Olympic, it was the Egyptian guy refusing to shake hands with the Israeli guy. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, That was, yeah. That was like the outstanding event of, the, of this year's judo. Jeez. The second most interesting thing to happen in the judo this year was Pat Hickey, 
uh, <laughs> going to going to the jail in in Rio. Yeah, former judo player. Um, you know, so so I, I'm not sure. I mean, it just strikes me as so arbitrary. You know, you you can pick out some examples of good sportsmanship for this, and but you know, there's examples of good sportsmanship everywhere. You know, football. In fact, the 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 most outstanding display of respect between two athletes that I saw, two opposing athletes that I saw all weekend was in UFC when Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz covered in blood having beaten each other senseless for 25 minutes then almost couldn't take, take couldn't take their hands off each other in the post fight they were they were you know locked in a lover's embrace mm-hmm. oh wow man so much respect you know you're you're a warrior you're an unbelievable warrior god you're amazing you know you got such a oh you know now you're pretty good yourself you know it was it was total Total respect, and that, and this is in a sport which, <laughs> I mean, uh, some people what question whether it's even really a sport. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they were throwing throwing cans at each other. You know, there wasn't. It's not necessarily uh, always regarded as a, as a great, uh, you know, uh, the arena of respect. UFC but, respect you know. is also revealed in the way Olympians take time to thank those who have coached and nurtured them. Says Syed. Laura Trott, for example, I knew Paul Manning would insist on me having the legs for it and it's really paid off. It's credit to him that I was able to do it. I cannot thank people in the background enough who aren't even here. Nobody in football ever does that, of course. I mean, it's not as though you win the Ballon d'Or and don't thank everyone. You know what I mean? Any, well, any, Ronaldo probably doesn't, does he? Uh, he well, listen to every single man. I mean, it's the most cliched thing literally in broadcast journalism. Uh, so congratulations on your man of the match award. Well, this one's for the lads in the dressing room, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it is. I was just on the end of the, you know, I'll just stick me head in, and then the lads of what they've done there. Like, honestly, who is that? Every who, who, se- that's Joe Footballer. Oh, it's, uh, it's not a specific player. Specific footballer in mind. I mean, to say that is just so utterly wrongheaded in every conceivable way, yeah. because. I mean, all all basically has happened there is he hasn't heard Laura Trott say that enough times, so he doesn't know that that's a, a cliche in Laura Trott's world. Yeah. That's all that's happened. All he's done is he's watched, you know, 10 million footballer interviews at the end of every game where you're asked about a brilliant achievement and you vainly try and deflect some of that because otherwise you sound like an arsehole. Well, of course, I couldn't have done it without uh, the lads. credit to uh, Giggsy for the, for the ball. For the ball in, you know. I, I'd want to have been a fool not to to have missed from there. I was thinking that that there hadn't been as much of it this time, and actually that is true. There hasn't been as much. And you know the, why, Ken? Why? Because it's the, the Olympic movement is, is rotten dying. to the core. Uh, yeah, a dying movement. Yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely everything about it is wrong. You know, you, we've we've seen seen an incompetently uh, managed Olympics taking place in largely empty stadiums. Uh, against the backdrop of massive popular protest in the host in the host <laughs> nation, right? With you know top ranking officials being arrested, you know, with allegations of touting mm. going around. I know. suppose if you spend enough time in the velodrome and out by the rower circle, I mean, maybe you can actually miss everything else about the Olympics. Mm. But I mean, surely it's the most like even the most casual observer would have to have said, "God, I mean." I haven't followed this Olympics, but it seems like there's been a lot of you know, unrest and trouble and disaster over there. I mean, the the you know what we've seen in this Olympics also um, Team GB comes second in the medal table, which no smaller country by smaller I mean not the United States, USSR, slash Russia or China, no smaller country has managed to come in the top two since East Germany in 1988, which is also a country that took a a, a very activist approach. To the to the problem of the Olympics, you know, a, a state-led approach, you know, highly organised, extremely well-funded, 
targeting medals in sports where it could be won. I mean, what, a, what an inspirational story. What an inspirational story that is. You know, um, East Germany and, and the UK alike uh, going, well, you know, we're, our aim obviously is to win as many gold medals as possible. What's the best way, what's the most rational way we can allocate our resources to do that? And then targeting that religiously. Apparently £9.3 million per gold is roughly what they've spent. Mm-hmm. Um, a figure which, to my mind, is obscene. Almost as obscene as the transfer of Joanna Luigi Lentini. In fact, Lentini only cost a little bit more than an Olympic gold medal. <laughs> I mean, if you add in inflation, maybe we're talking three gold medals. Mm. And that was, that, was once rega- that was once described as obscene by the Pope. Well, if you have the money allocated to sport, to elite sport, why not use it in a way? There, there's been a lot made of the... We've kind of moved away, I guess, from the footballer GB... Oh, sorry, footballer Olympian comparison. But I don't know how much there is in that, really. To continue with, so I, li- I like your your thread here. Well, Ken. I mean, nine point three million is a lot of money if you're paying it. I mean, if Manchester United want to pay, you know, ninety million for Paul Pogba, which you know is part of the argument here that the money is obscene. That you know, it's it's if if there's that much money around, it must be in some way less. In nineteen ninety six, Britain GB won one medal, one gold medal, one, certainly one gold yeah. medal. Yeah, that, pins and red. That's pretty embarrassing for. A small country, as Ken says, G- Great Britain. Well, it's a, it's a small country compared to China, the it, country that they've I know, I know. beaten. In. It's a big country for a, it's a country big enough that they should be winning more than one gold medal. Mm. And uh, you know, their argument is that back then they they made a decision that they were going to start taking this seriously and looking at how they could actually start winning more gold medals. Obviously, they've gotten the national lottery money to do that. They've started pumping it in. They've ruthlessly axed sports from that funding who haven't matched up. Even ones who've done reasonably well, like swimming, got cut. And I'd say the swimming bosses are pretty happy this time around. Well, maybe, you cut our funding. Yeah, well, we'll no. just go and win a load of medals. Got Adam Peaty, yeah. So yeah. Maybe, they'll be, maybe their funding will be getting bumped up now. But, you know, that's, that, this, this is like, a, wow, this is such an inspirational story of managerial um, excellence, managerial and administrative macroeconomic excellence. You know, please, I want to read more about this. I hope, so, I hope someone does a book on the GB sports miracle how lottery funding and um rational uh, economic rationalization uh, led to britain's glory gold hall uh, but the last thing i just want to mention yeah. on that is the <laughs> I, I remember this from four years ago one of my favorite memories of the olympics from four years ago was the fact that the community shield began the community shield was like the last weekend of the olympics uh they had to have it at Villa Park because, like, the Olympic football final was on at Wembley. And it was Chelsea against Man City. And I remember, I'm, I've spoken about this before, but I just just remember it as being so funny. Because this, uh, th- this time four years ago, the whole, oh, the Olympians are really, this is what sport is all about. And, you know, oh, these awful, you know, football creatures, mm. you know, we've, which we've been watching. That was in full cry for, like, the whole last week of the Olympics that was going on. It was way worse last time than it is this time. But... Chelsea against Man City was one of the most disgusting games. <laughs> there was eight bookings. Ivanovic was sent off. The crowd was abusing Terry for his racism, uh, the, the, the racism <laughs> stuff which was going on at that time. And I remember that when it went to half time, the Chelsea fans were screaming at the referee as he walked off, wanker, 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 wanker. And it was just, everything about it was just so horrible. <laughs> negative football. football. Yeah. Well, what was that? What was the hockey there or something? Negative football. Well, negative it was football. negative. It was negative emotions. 
negative so sentiment. much more than just like ba- you know sort of negative tactics everything yeah. in the the entire crowd and most of it was poisonous vicious. like they like they've been reading all this and thought yeah, yeah, yeah. okay yeah we're going to show you is. this it's, is what this is what the world is really like. <laughs> rub your noses in it you know you, you've been you've been in that dream world yeah. for the last little while you know all this oh you know we love I mean, I, I think what the, the Premier League footballers really need is for the Premier League itself to decamp, you know, for four years, maybe to Azerbaijan or something. Now, obviously, you'd have to get Azerbaijan to pay for the 20 home Premier fire. League Premier League grants, obviously. I, I, that I would know, be fine. I know but, that Azerbaijan is the land of fire, thanks to football. Football has taught me that. <laughs> you know, just so they could reconnect with the purity of sport, mm. you know? So you just get some country to buy, to spend... To, to build all 20 of their home grounds and, you know, house them for a year, maybe. You know, mm. it, might, it, it might just get bring them back in touch with the core <laughs> principles of world sport. Let's report on some sport here. So, um, I guess we might as well start with West Ham owned. Um, living in the Olympic Stadium like a, like a hermit crab in a purloined shell. <laughs> besmirching the sacred turf. For once, George Osborne was booed by the, uh, <laughs> by the masses. Um, and winning their first uh, league match at that stadium, 1-0, thanks to Mikhail Antonio. Um, people were complaining it was a bit soulless, the stadium. I thought it looked great on television. Um, it, looks a bit, it looks a bit old-fashioned. It looks a bit like a kind of the San Paolo Stadium in Serie A. You know, Very Italian 90. Yeah. Yeah, Serie A on... Or Three out on RT television on a Monday night. I know people complain about these <clears throat> stadiums running tracks, of which the Olympic Stadium is obviously one, uh, and that uh, something is lost in atmosphere. But I'm not 100 percent sure about that. I mean, I've been in a few stadiums that have that. Um, you know, I can think of the Luzhniki Stadium in Moscow. The where else? The one in Berlin, also an Olympic stadium. These are all Olympic stadiums, right? Um, and. There's something about them actually quite like. I mean, they're, just, they're sort of so much bigger in a way. I mean, there's obviously a wider space. They so usually compensate for that by being a bit flatter or lower. Um, but you do get the sense of a big event, certainly compared to, you know, the Bowling Ground, which was fine. It was an atmospheric stadium. Can we go back to calling it Upton Park? Yeah, now? by the way. I just said uh, this Bowling Ground. Mikel, Mikel Antonio on Match of the Day as well, talking about the Bowling Ground. It's like that, that was for the last six months of its entire history. Yeah, Up until then, Upton it was Upton Park. Upton Park. Which was which was fine. It, you know, you had some big steep stands there. It was good. It was a good sort of tight football ground. Although it did have, it was weirdly asymmetric. One sort of one side of the pitch, there was all this space between that and the stand, which wasn't it wasn't the same on the other side. The opposite stand like, to what, the cameras. Yeah, what was going on with this? But um, I thought watching it on TV anyway, it looks it looks like the home ground of a big club. You know, you kind of you kind of get the real sense of West Ham entering the big time here. Um, piggybacking on that Olympic uh, glory, I, I was—I started watching it. I was watching the highlights package. So the first few shots are all fans blowing bubbles and loads of songs and mm. all that kind of thing. I must say that when it did actually pan to the pitch, there maybe it's the abruptness of it. Mm. I, the first shot I saw of the pitch with the big with the running track around, I thought, "Whoa, that—that's a running track, all right." Oh, it's a huge, <laughs> it's, it's a big huge. running track. You really are a long way away. Maybe I've gotten too used to. I was watching a lot of basketball in the Olympics, mm. for example, uh, and. You know, there's a sport where you can get, you can get, you can influence the action if you really want to. If you're sitting courtside, there, there was an amazing. There was a, the quarterfinal between USA and Argentina was unbelievable. USA were just giving them a good solid spanking. They lost Argentina about eight years ago, twelve years ago, and they weren't taking any chances. So they had their put their best foot forward, destroyed them, which didn't stop the Argentinian fans who were 
thronging the stands, cheering and chanting football style, you know, going absolutely crazy. We've all seen this chant. They've done it. We had to sit there for the Rugby World Cup quarterfinal last year and mm. watch them do it. Yeah, do their chanting. Uh, the American players were just flabbergasted. They, mm. they, the guys on the, on the ground were looking behind their shoulders going, this is bonkers. They were out laughing to each other, you know. Uh, so maybe I was watching a little too much of that. Maybe I'm, like Matthew said, Ken, everything, I'm seeing everything through the rose-tinted Olympic spectacles now. Yeah. And I can't accept that not every stadium, not every sports venue is going to have fans right on top of the players. Like basketball. Yeah, look, you know, you're going to have to get your head around that. You and Syed are going to have to uh, start readjusting to reality here. Uh, Andy Carroll, incidentally, um, who was the subject of some, well, if you're him, somewhat worrying comments from the manager where Savin Village said, yeah, well, see, the problem with Andy, who's injured again at the moment, is, you know, when you're trying to plan, you just can never count on him. You just can't really count on him. He's always injured, uh, which doesn't sound good. Andy Carroll defiantly tweeted, devastated about my recent injured but I'm still the 15 to 20 goal man. <laughs> Did he say Hashtag, that? come on, you irons. <laughs> still has he scored 15 to 20 goals? Once. He has scored 15, uh, 15 plus goals. I'm on sure one, if Andy were here, he'd say, well, yeah, but I'm injured all the time. So, I mean, how, <laughs> how am I supposed to score 15 to 20 goals? That was the season Newcastle were in the uh, championship. Uh, but he did score 15 uh, plus goals on one occasion. But I just love the way that he, you know, without sounding like he's overselling himself actually does oversell himself yeah <laughs> a little bit I've purposely lowered the bar of expectation but in reality I'm below that bar uh, Andy Carroll thinks of himself as like does he have it on his wall <laughs> you are the 15 to 20 goal man N- you know never forget that you know you are beautiful no matter what they say um, I don't know but the, speaking of these numbers on 81% what? Mean anything to you? 81%. 81%. Liver- Liverpool's possession on Correct. Saturday morning? Oh, Correct. Nice. Stick with me, Owen, you'll be all right. <laughs> 81%. The most, Owen, the most possession any Premier League side has ever had in a game and not managed to win that game. In fact, they lost the game by two goals to nil, which is not a good result. And uh, <clears throat> prompting a furious tirade from none other than Richard Keyes. See, Richard Keyes has got a bee in his bonnet. We haven't heard from him in a while. He begins with this. He says, now, I may have got this completely wrong. (laughs) But ever since I first went to watch Coventry, aged four, I've been under the impression that the purpose of playing football is to win. Right? We all agree on that? Do we agree? Yes. Yes, Richard. How? Simple. Put the ball in the opponent's (laughs) net more times than they do yours. Yes? Yeah? Yes, yeah, no, yes, I agree with that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Richard, yeah. yes. If you can do that with a panache and excitement that gets supporters on the edge of their seats, job done. That's how United always did it under Fergie. It was breathless stuff. Of course, there were times when it didn't all come together, but no one ever left Old Trafford early, just in case. Now, not every manager is, is fortunate to have the tools at their disposal that Fergie did, so not everybody can play like that, but the purpose of the game remains the same. Find a way to put the ball in your opponent's net. See, Richard Keyes is annoyed by the fact that apparently everybody seems to think possession... Mm. equals victory. But it doesn't. And he's, and he's hoping that Burnley's win finally manages to, po- to point this out. And Leicester's title win last season, the same thing. When will these possession people... Nerds, can You know, when, possession when will they should have... The thing is, I, nobody has been saying this. Literally nobody thinks mm. this. Is there anybody who thinks that possession is the way to... You know, that there is no link between 
There is no correlation between the possession that you have in the game and your likelihood of winning that game. There is none. There is a correlation between the number of shots on target you have in a game and whether or not you win the game. That's the only kind of one of these broad measures that they've been able to kind of say, yes, that is a, that is a factor. That kind of s- seems reasonable enough. Possession in itself doesn't mean anything. Um, and I'm pretty sure that Jurgen Klopp uh, would not uh, be surprised by this information that, that Richard Keyes before. I think he'd be like, yeah, we know that. The scales are falling from Jurgen's eyes as um, he reads this blog post. But, you know, the the main piece of news, I suppose, regarding Liverpool, apart from their, their return to their typically inconsistent way, it's this story of, of a Chinese uh, corporation, Everbright, apparently being interested in buying them in, the, in a move which, according to the Sunday Times, could make the Reds the richest club in the league. <laughs> I like the human embodiment there of a newspaper headline. That what? actually just, just did sound. That, that's how a headline is supposed to sound. Yeah. Reds could be richest club, <laughs> league's richest club. Uh, well, it's interesting that that story comes out just after we were talking, a couple of days after we were talking about Jurgen Klopp's interview with Stern magazine where he said that outspending your rivals and buying your way to success in the manner of you know Manchester United, Manchester City and certain other clubs mm. is no fun, makes no sense and is sick. <laughs> uh, so... I don't know what Klopp's view on this is. Is possibly working for Everbright Corporation and uh, being asked to spend a lot of money. Uh, although the current owners of Liverpool say that they're not interested in selling the whole club, or they might be prepared to sell just a little piece of the club if, well, at the right price. Richard Keyes had two bees in that bonnet. You want to be careful. You don't want too many bees in your bonnet. But he was tweeting on Friday night. So, uh, where is it? Join Angus Scott for Friday Night Football on Be In Sports the home of the biggest football show on the planet. We take our football seriously. Now, maybe we take our football seriously is their, um, f- their tagline, r- their tagline, their raison d'etre. Could well be. Couldn't help but notice that he tweeted that around the time of uh, Friday Night Football's debut on <laughs> oh, Sky really? Sports. Oh, Friday Night Football. I could be reading too much into this, Ken, but I'm not. Um, well, Friday Night Football uh, included... Reviews have been mixed, Ken. Uh, well, well, how do you mean? I've read of the match or no, no of the of the concept. No, the new banter heavy. Yeah, and I'm using the word banter because they use it themselves uh, on at least one occasion during. Oh, was it was Jeff Stelling looking quite relaxed as though he was on a. Oh, so they don't see they're all so they're all sitting there, no ties, just open shirts, more match of the day Mm. than usual Sky sharp suits over the weekend. Because of course you just you wear suits when you're watching football on the weekend, but Mm. if you're watching on Friday night, we, we all know you don't. Go to the pub in the suit. You know, it just looks were like they, straight from. Were work. they drinking wine? They weren't quite drinking wine, no. But they were making a lot of. There were a lot of. Who was your pinup? I think Rachel Riley uh, might have admitted that Ryan Giggs was her. Rachel Riley's yeah. one of the presenters was her pinup, and that led to a conversation about who had who as pinups when they were young. And Jeff Stelling told us that Olivia Newton-John was his, and I just kind of started thinking this. Olivia Newton-John. What age is Jeff Stelling? This is too much. I would have thought he was a bit, old, a bit older than that. I don't, I, I don't. I actually don't like when I show. Maybe it's because I work in media, Murph. I always get a bit uncomfortable when a show is absolutely hammered the first mm. time out because things take a while to develop and to find a voice. So a brand new show isn't going to look the, at necessarily the very same, even at the end of the first season, as it as it did at the start. Uh, but they, they did show. No, but hang on, yeah. they, they, they did show Neil Ruddock stripping off on League of Their Own. And I, I mean, I, th- I think that, like, you can you can make a lot of decisions, you know, before a program starts. Mm. But the decision to have Neil Ruddock with his top off and, you know, d- d- uh, pulling away at the exact moment 
where Ruddock whips off his trousers as mm. well. I mean, I think at that stage, you have yeah, to no, say, they're going for the they're, they're seriously going for the lighthearted. Someone texted me during it, one thousand percent banter. <laughs> That's what this show was. Um, and I, I don't think I don't think I can handle that. So uh, it turns out my it's reasonable that Jeff Stelling could have had Olivia Newton John as a pinup. Uh, my uh, he, Jeff Stelling is sixty one years old. Uh, but my mistake was to underestimate the age of Olivia Newton-John, who apparently is 67 years old. When she was in Greece, she was 30, uh, although she was playing a high school senior. Stockard Channing was the same, 30 years old, playing her uh, mate in high school. So a 23-year-old Jeff Stelling saw Olivia Newton-John no, in Greece. You see, she, wasn't, she was already famous before she was in Greece. Of course, the, I know. Yes, yes, yes. So, so it wasn't a case of him... Actually at 23 years of age no. pinning up posters that's what I was wondering <laughs> that is what that is what I was wondering but that, 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 that is of not course the case he was, was not the case yeah. but they, they did they aired that interview with uh, Paul Pogba and Thierry Henry you know uh, wow uh, the, the best bit of the interview I thought was a slight awkwardness because obviously there was, a, there was a real sense of camaraderie between um, journalist and subject in this case the kind that you maybe you couldn't get Jerry Reed's just got a sort of a credibility with footballers that that you just can't, you know, develop as a journalist. You can't buy that and you can't develop it. You've either got it, i.e. you've played, been a player at Pogba's level and a legend on his level. On Ray's level, yeah. Or, yeah, or you're not. Um, so when he walked in, Pogba's immediately going, oh, you know, TT, you know, I can, uh, you're, you're a man I can, I can speak to seriously about subjects. And they did. They, they spoke about shoes and clothes and things like that. But um, there was a slight moment of awkwardness. Did you n- notice the same moment when Thierry Henry said, what would you describe as your best attribute? And Pogba's like, Shh, I don't know. I mean, you know, kind of what he's thinking is, I'm good at so many things, it's difficult to pick one outstanding attribute. And Henri kind of goes, you know, because I'm, sometimes I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, okay, okay. But what is he really good at? <laughs> He's good at so many things, but what is he excellent at? It was all, that wasn't the question that Pogba was asking in, in his head. It was yeah. like, of all of the things I'm really good at, what is my best? As opposed to, Henri, what is, is he we, Does he have one good thing? That is- <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah, Pogba is kind of like, there was a sort of a slight, slight rictus grin for that. And then he was like, oh, loads of things. I mean, really, I suppose to, the outstanding quality is versatility. You know, it's like it's the fact that he is good at so many things is the is the outstanding quality. There are very few players who have that, who, you know, who have the ability to defend, attack, be at one end of the pitch, then be at the other end of the pitch, score goals, create goals. You know, it's it's a rare it's a rare uh, range of skills, yeah. and that's that is the outstanding thing about him. I liked Pogba's interview. I got to say, he I thought he handled uh, Alex Ferguson. The, the, there's a full Sky Sports but a full eight minute version. I'm not sure how many minutes of that were actually played in the final edit on Friday Night Football. But he dealt with the question. He was very clear to say he never fell out with Alex Ferguson and that he left because he wanted to play. He, that's the line that we've always heard that he wanted to play. He was ready to go. Ferguson didn't think he was. And so there we go. So he, he was quite diplomatic there. As you, not surprisingly, thought he was good. And what else? I was just talking about the joy of playing football. I thought it was quite genuine that he seems to... He's an enthusiastic guy. I don't know why I'm surprised that his English was so good, seeing as he did spend mm. a good few years in Manchester. Mm. But, jeez, he speaks well. You know, this guy's yeah. going to be a hell of a performer. And we, we saw him even having the crack after the game with Zlatan. He was, oh. They were loving each other. He does an impression of Zlatan as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. We might, I'll tell you, we might dig out a bit, a bit of this interview. But I like, we'll dig out the Zlatan impression. Well, you're giving me weird looks there as I... What's, what's the look? No. 
Zlatan is always having to pop at his shoes. How long does Pogba spend picking at shoes every morning? Will this stand between him and greatness? I mean, I don't know. But uh, Manchester United managed to win the Monday Night Football match. Uh, Friday, Friday Night, Football, Night Football. Friday Night Football match. Uh, by two goals to nil, a penalty kick and a header from the big lad. Mm. And 43% possession. Which uh, I think Richard Keyes would probably nod significantly at. If you know what I mean. Mm. 43 uh, because possession is in the And uh, a Mourinho skeptic, a friend of mine, texted before he said, hmm, Pogba and Fellaini. I wonder which name was first on the team sheet. Uh, Fellaini is experiencing a renaissance, um, a, a, a flowering, maybe for the first time, uh, at, at Old Trafford. Uh, as the sun, uh, Mourinho is the sun and he shines upon him. And Fellaini is now opening his petals and showing what he can really be. Uh, Mourinho says, it's a complete change in the relationship. I'm happy with the result. Maybe a simple phone call could make a difference to a player who was feeling he was not loved. To a player who, when the transfer market opened, everyone was saying he was leaving. Everyone was saying he wasn't for me. Maybe a simple phone call then, after my presentation as Manchester United manager, changed a lot. I said to him, forget everything you read. With me, you don't leave for sure. Maybe that confidence in him was unexpected. The more organized the team is, the easier it is for players to feel confident. So, Fellaini is a linchpin player for Mourinho. He is, he, he's got a, a lot of the things that Mourinho wants to see in, in his team. He's tall. He can head the ball powerfully. He's good at set pieces at both ends of the field. He's got a little streak of wanton violence. <laughs> and, you know, he, he will, you know, now that he's found... for. At last, a leader. A Safe harbour. Yeah. He will die for Jose Mourinho now. You know, he will, he will die for him. And kill for him. He'll kill. He'll, <laughs> kill, the he'll kill a lot of guys. He'll kill a lot of guys. He's the perfect. It's the perfect situation for Mourinho. Um, you can see the Manchester United supporters, as Mourinho says, um, uh, that the crowd is magnificent and they're creating a good relationship with the team and players, even players who in previous years I could feel the relationship wasn't the best. That would be Marwan Fellaini, who in several occasions last season was cheered off the field as he was substituted by this crowd who are finding a way to fall in love with them all over again. And who could not be inspired by a story like that? Good mental strength being shown by Fellaini. Speaking of which, Ken, Neymar oh, yeah. finally had his moment for Brazil. He did. Um, this taking the fifth penalty thing, though, I mean, come on. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, but it worked out, though, didn't it? Well, it worked. Owen were talking about that. Yeah, it's worked out the last the last two times. I texted Ken in advance. I thought, oh no, this is all set up for... Before the penalty shootout started, I thought, this is all set up for Neymar to miss the last penalty, isn't it? Yeah. I thought he was going to go first, but then obviously he decided, no, last. And it did work out. Um, I think Germany missed their last penalty. Yeah. Um, so he just had to score. And I mean, I, I, do, I would have to say, though, that if this is a, a team made up largely of under-23s, the idea that you could hand over... You know, basically not take responsibility to take the, one of the first four penalties and run the risk of not taking a penalty at all to just on the off chance that you could get some glory. I mean, I, I did find that a little well, ridiculous. We're not having this conversation two days ago ahead of the game, we're having it after the game. And Neymar yeah. got the glory, banged the ball into the back of the net. Um, so shut your, shut your fat mouth. If I, was, if I was Neymar, I'd be telling you to shut your fat mouth and look at the replay. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Neymar. He he had scored a brilliant free kick as well in the first half, in off the crossbar. Germany equalised in the second half. Um, 
very tense. Brazil were actually the better side, I thought, especially as the game went on. I thought they were better in extra time. Huge crowd. Everyone were very into it. I was happy for him. I, I know. Oh, yeah. I, I know. I know. I, I take Murph's argument. I also know, like, there's obviously this, like, it's such a manufactured thing. This uh, three overage players in this mm. tournament of under. Well, Miguel Delaney was calling a near child's tournament. <laughs> uh, we'll talk to him in a, in a few minutes, but. But uh, like having said that, I, I enjoy watching Neymar play. I kind of like how he goes about his business on the pitch. I think he is a pretty good team player. Uh, you know, he's obviously selfish on the ball at times, but like that's you know, the type of player that he is. But I don't. I get the sense that he, you know, he's not quite got the Ronaldo le- levels of narcissism, no. and he probably deserves that moment after well, getting booted out of the World Cup. I think he does have a have an what previously would have been regarded as an extraordinary level of narcissism. Um. But it's actually normal for people of his generation, especially if you are like him, among the most famous you know, and talented athletes in the world. It's not a normal kind of life that he lives. You know, if you look at his social media, it's, you know, uh, I'm sure that previous generations would have looked at it and thought, this per- you know, is a crazy person. There's something wrong with him. But it's not. It's just the way that people are now. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, the, front, the forward-facing camera on a phone has, has really been a game changer in terms of what's considered what human nature is considered to be so uh, he did go a bit crazy uh, at the end. It's, it's a ninth final incidentally that he has scored in and won in his career, he's only 24 so it's an amazing record in finals he's, he is a player who delivers um, at the end he put on the 100% Jesus headband uh, then he was then I mean, he was doing a lap of honour and there's footage of this uh, from the, taken from the crowd when he suddenly gets into an altercation with a supporter, screaming at the supporter, banging on the table, you know, jabbing his finger into his chest and then back into the face of whoever this supporter is. Um, apparently, I was asking James Young, who's based down in, mm. in Brazil, in Belo Horizonte, and he basically says that a couple of fans have criticized him earlier in the game. He recognized them afterwards <laughs> and lost it, at least learned something from, uh, from Dunga. Uh, Carl Doherty says also that he had been accused of tax evasion and forgery. He shouts back at them, here is Brazil. Here, like, basically tells him where to go. One or two expletives. And he says, you know, this is it. This is, this is Brazil. This is Brazil. Brazil's back. And, uh, yeah. But would Jesus have behaved in that way? What, what, what worn a 100% Neymar headband? Didn't he tip over the the... The money changers. The, yes, the money lenders. The money changers in the temple, yeah. Didn't, they, didn't he charge you over a few tables? He did. That was the one time he really lost his rag. You know, but his, his teaching... Most unparliamentary. <laughs> generally was to say, look, you know, turn the inner cheek. Isn't that the whole key? You know, if someone shouts, if someone shouts at you, oh, Kira Murphy, you're a tax dodger, you're a money launderer, you're a forger. Your response is to simply go... Well, it's okay, you know. They, you know not what you do, and to turn the other cheek. But that's not what Neymar's approach is. He still has things to learn. But I suppose there'll be enough time for Bible study when he's finished this incredible football career of his. Let's wind down this report on sport. Owen McDevitt! All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt! Worldwide! The Murph and Mackey for most welcome Irishman of the year goes to Owen McDevitt. Owen, 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 Owen McDevitt. From Ireland's second captain show. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. Second captain. Those guys, are, those guys are like family to me, man. Owen McDevitt. This is Locke. The 
coolest song I ever heard in my whole life. Owen McDevitt. All of you said I wouldn't make Stop it. Stop talking about Tom Finney. He said I was a loser. This guy is a bit of a turkey. <laughs> All right. He said I was a fucking psycho. But look at me now. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. To say, for example, the Barcelona team you worked at, is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Miguel, we haven't really, uh, haven't really talked about Chelsea, but I think we might have forgotten Chelsea entirely in our preseason um, top four predictions. Uh, as in, they didn't even end up in the shake-up to be in the top four. But that was more of an oversight than anything else, and they've started pretty well. Do you think these sort of wins, like the comfortable one at the weekend, are... Quite important, given that, okay, they've got a new manager. You assume that last season's issues would have been resolved by that, but you can never be sure. Was it important just psychologically that they've shown that they're actually the Chelsea possibly of two seasons ago rather than last year? Well, I suppose it's that classic thing with, with late goals. Um, is the late goal a sign of you know the character of the team and how much scope there is for improvement, or is it a sign of problems that really need to fi- be fixed? I'd say probably a bit of both. I think psychologically given the state Chelsea were in last season, and also given the fact they're adjusting and adapting to a manager that is so distinctive in what he does, I think um, those wins are very important because, you know, it's, it's, it's the ultimate thing in football, even going back to, to ourselves. I remember Kevin Moran saying about Jack Charlton when the players weren't really buying into his methods and then they won that tournament at ice and then things started, they, they realised, I mean, wins just change everything in that regard because I think from what I've heard, it has been a little bit of an issue at Chelsea because, I mean, Conte is so unique in the way, in the way he approaches the game, and like I mean, we, you know, given that Ireland played him in the Euro as well, there's been so much commentary about the intensity of approaches. And I heard that a few players weren't, maybe not completely buying into it was the wrong is the wrong phrase, but they weren't. I suppose they weren't invested in it in the way the Italian squad was. Now the thing about it, what is the Italian squad are the exact same? It, it took them a while to adapt to it, and wins like this will obviously help that. But it's interesting, even the way they played. Chelsea haven't completely imposed, or sorry, Conte hasn't completely imposed what his ideal was going into the job. Like in both matches, he started off playing. Like this is obviously a manager who's so uh, fixed on the time, or, or so invested in, in in his tactical setup, and spends so much time thinking about it. I mean, last week he he told us that the night before games he barely sleeps because he's weighing up all, all the information in his mind, and sometimes when he when he wakes up after an hour or two of sleep he'll suddenly stumble upon some tactical solution. So he had very fixed ideas about his tactics. And he wanted to come into Chelsea and play a 4-2-4, but hasn't, re- hasn't had the midfielders to play that other than Kante because the two central midfielders have to run so much in a, in a Kante system. So, and also, he doesn't have the central defenders to play a high line either. So in both games, he's actually started with, with a 4-1-4-1 or a 4-2-3-1. And then mid-game, when they've not been winning, he switched. Illustrated by bringing Fabregas on the other day. And I think maybe... It'll work for the moment in stretched games, but yeah, but I think there there is so much he has to do to make it a true Conte team. The, his approach is overbearing because too much, you know. I mean, whatever about the stuff on the sideline, you know, he, he's obviously a backseat driver. And fair enough, you know, a lot of managers uh, do that these days, and you wonder how much of it is just for the benefit of the cameras. Um, but this mm. this whole idea of you know, I don't I don't sleep. Do you take that seriously, or is that like? You know, the light is always on in, in Mussolini's office. Um, is he really getting by on two hours of sleep before a match? Well, I suppose there was, I mean, there's even stories, I think his wife has told in Italian media where she's, she's come downstairs in the middle of the night to find his face illuminated by the TV. 
because he, he's watching games. Uh, I, I, I think it, I mean, Conte himself is a very uh, interesting character in that regard. When I went to his press conference last Friday, I was actually kind of slightly surprised by how serene he was, and almost kind of so eager to please the journalists um, and, and so polite about it all. And then went to the game on Monday night, and to compare what he was on Friday to this demaniac on the line on Monday, um, maybe has to kind of compartmentalise some of his life in that way. Um, in terms of what it's overbearing, I, I suppose the issue is sustainability. I mean, it's, it's almost like, in a, in a different way, cut from the same sort of approach as, as Mourinho, because Mourinho is so intense and overbearing, so there's well, that argument. Kind of like a more, that, or, kind, sorry, of, kind of a younger, a younger that, Mourinho. There's that argument with Mourinho that, that his approach can't last more than two and a half years because of what he saps from players. Now, and it's interesting whether we'll see the same with Conte. Maybe Juventus needed to change, for example, in three years. But um, I suppose a lot of it comes down to a manager's charisma as well, and how much he can, he can get the players to buy into it. And... Uh, I mean, so so far they they loved him at, at Italy and Juventus, and and actually one thing I've noticed a lot with Conte as well, he goes on an awful lot, and this is particularly interesting given the kind of the evolution of managers in the last decade and how we're we're a new breed. It didn't necessarily need to play at the top level. Conte goes on a lot about how well I I know from my own experiences as a player when when they need to be encouraged, how they need to buy into things. Like he he has referenced that an awful lot in the last the last few weeks. Yeah, seems to be working with Diego Costa anyway. And it's interesting because I was actually just before I came on air, I was looking back at um, at Conte's press conference from last Friday, in which he has a pretty strong cut of um, of of Diego Costa. He's basically telling him that to, to shape. I mean, there was there was a lot of story talk in the summer that that Costa wanted to go back to Spain. That you know, there, there was a, a, a little bit of uh, tension between himself and Conte. And I mean, on the this is the Friday before the season started. Uh, Conte said, "I think Diego can improve still a lot. He's a fantastic player, but he can improve a lot. I hope for this." And this, this was when Conte was, was you know, he, he wasn't trying to. Uh, he was in a very kind of polite, serene frame. But so they're kind of strong words in that context. But then we've we've seen it as well in terms of the reaction. And, and Conte has looked sharper, and not, like not to mention the fact that he scored twice and two and two match winners. Costa, you mean? Yeah, I suppose. So Costa, yeah. Although I suppose Conte, in a way, looks always looks sharp. Helped him and and, and helped him yeah. score those goals in a real sense. Scored those calls himself, but another thing that another um, theme that he sort of struck uh, in in recent days is uh, echoing Arsene Wenger a little bit, or maybe a man yeah. who couldn't who couldn't be more different from him uh, in his approach, but uh, has the same concern over the market and is is moaning that uh, even medium players, as he described them, are. You know, a, qu- a club might quote you fifty-five million pounds. This is crazy. The market is crazy. It's crazy. Um, it seems to me that a lot of managers uh, are, g- are getting a bit scared of the way the transfer market is now, because traditionally transfer spending has been used as a as a metric by which they're judged. You know, yeah. a manager who spends a ton of money is judged by harsher standards than a manager who doesn't really spend. This is why Arsene Wenger doesn't really want to spend money. I think you know he's he. Yeah. He he knows that he can always point to, hey, I've actually made a profit on transfers or, you know, spent almost nothing compared to my competitors. You know, he he knows that that's a plus point in his favor, at least from the point of view of his board. So no, Conte... No, they don't win anything. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, he yeah. at least he can say, but uh, at least I, I, I managed to win nothing very cheaply and efficiently <laughs> in terms of resources. Whereas 
you know, the, these kinds of fees are being talked about, like Koulibaly, the defender Chelsea were interested in, they're talking about, you know, 45 to 60 million euros <laughs> for yeah. a defender. So for a good player, but not, well, not enough yet to suggest he's that bright. But then I suppose... Conte knows like that, that if, he, if he spends that money, he... If he spends that money, then everyone's going to be like, "Well, he has to win the league now." And this yeah. is what this is what's scaring him. We're going to have but, to sort of recalibrate. But, but, I mean, I mean, we've already seen the two Manchester clubs spend huge money, and only one of them can win it. And so you're right, for that sense, that it's almost like managers' mentalities in that regard haven't caught up with just how much money is in England. Because I think now Alan Smith did a piece in the Guardian about two weeks ago about how thirty million is now actually the standard price for uh, for a kind of a, a decent standard Premier League footballer and that's pretty generally the case but yeah even despite that if you, so 50 so 50 60 million could be the price now for for a better player maybe not top top class but for for a good player who improve your team but transfers are still such a gamble to an extent and for that if that doesn't work out that figure on its own outside the context of how much money is english football it's still so huge so you're, you're probably right in that, that they're kind of they're kind of wary and it'll it, you know it'll probably take a bit more um a, a, a bit more, or sorry, a few more big moves for that to change because it, it is a little bit at the moment that everyone except the two Manchester clubs are kind of afraid to roll the dice in that way. So for all the money in the English game, we haven't actually yet seen a complete explosion of how much they can spend. And, and also, they, they, so many managers think, and Conte is probably the same, they seem very wary of this idea that foreign clubs, because they see how much money is in England, will basically just completely overcharge them. And I don't want to get sucked into that, which is fair in its own right, but. If, if if one or two start to do it, as we've seen with, with United and and City, then, uh, then then that changes the parameters. It's either you know spend spend or be left behind. Miguel, I'm disgusted by all this talk of spending, spending on these pampered multimillionaire lazy layabout footballers. I don't. Does Diego Costa even train? I don't know. I don't think he bothers his arse training. To be honest <laughs> with you, what do you what do you think about the idea that the humble Olympian is uh, yet again, as I did in London, is showing up all the sort of vast waste around the uh, money spent on Premier League footballers? As predictable a topic as a convicted doper winning a gold medal at the Olympics. <laughs> you think? You think this is... Well, it's just every four years, it's like... And it is... <laughs> I suppose not to cast... A, not, to, not to be general... Or not to have generalisations about everyone who kind of writes these pieces. But a lot of that kind of commentary does seem to come from the sort of people that basically aren't interested in any of these sports in the four years in between, which is, which is one reason why they don't get the money that the, the footballers do because the sports literally aren't as popular. Well, Matthew Syed, um, in fairness, Matthew Syed is a top-level table tennis player, so he's interested in Olympic sports and he's one of the guys, right? Well, actually, his point wasn't about, he says that it's very much, it's fair enough that footballers get paid what they get paid, that it's, a, it's, just econo- it's just how a free economy, free market works. But what he does say is that there's something more elusive that the Olympians have that the footballers could learn from. You might call it respect. I haven't read the Syed piece yet. I okay. read one on the Telegraph yesterday. Um, okay, well, maybe comment on the one you've read then. What, what was what was the, the Telegraph piece say? I was just it, 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 the same sort of thing. How you know it, uh, a, a lot of it? The, the, there seems a kind of like a class over undertones to a lot of this sort of commentary, and you know, and, and, and invariably Raheem Sterling is brought up a, a player, just like basically a, a young player, unfairly castigated because of elements of his lifestyle and the fact that being a young player, he's not going to be, he's not going to have the hundred percent consistency of a player in his mid twenties. Um, and I, I suppose it completely overlooks the, the difficulties, or not the difficulties, but the, the, the commitment and sacrifice that other players would have to put in. I mean, it, amid all of this and the, and the issue of who's worthy of, cert, of certain plaudits, how tough athletes have had it, it's often forgotten 
that, and I was thinking about this in relation to kind of this whole wider debate about, say, who Ireland's greatest athlete is. Mm. But it's often forgotten. The popularity of football means that through sheer numbers, the amount of people you have to beat or be better than and work harder than to get to any sort of decent level is, is almost unquantifiable for other sports. So I, I think this is so much of this is so simplistic. And this is not to, like, not, not, obviously not to knock the, any, any Olympic athletes in that way, but it's just, it's just the way it's just used to, like, for this odds and kind of stupid argument, to be honest. Okay, I think your feelings are clear, Miguel Delaney. Great to talk to you. <laughs> no problem. It is very true about the idea, I think, that Wenger and other managers, well, actually, not that many of them are as afraid of him to spend money. It seems like others are more than happy to, but, and, but the fact that he won't go with them on that is being used now as a stick to beat him with. You see Sky Sports had a big conversation. The one with Henri a couple of weeks ago that we were talking about where they're showing amount of money spent by manager and Wenger's in it's this almost emasculating thing. Look at Wenger down there. All these other big men are spending all this money. And this yeah. weedy little fella at the bottom just can't yeah. spend a penny. He can't spend. He can't <laughs> spend. You know, I mean, it's exactly the opposite of Wenger's looking at account. How annoying must it be I'm to be I'm a normal him? human being, says Wenger. I'm, I'm not, you know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to run this club properly you know properly means don't squander money on stupid stuff that you don't need <laughs> when did the, the values become totally inverted but you know we, there was a brilliant bit on arsenal fan tv brilliant I mean, which i'm sure many of you have heard but i'm sure those of you who have heard it won't mind hearing a little bit of it again this is after the uh, this is outside the king power stadium after arsenal have drawn nil nil with leicester we'll hear a little bit of what the arsenal fans were saying and look at the players are being linked with johnny fucking evans what's his name callum fucking wilson who? Are you fucking sick? Are you serious, blood? The guy from Bournemouth, blood. Is man serious, fam? Arsenal Football Club, blood. Like I said, fam, we're fucked this year, blood. Seriously, fam. We are fucked, blood. I'm telling you, fam. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. There's two minutes of that, and I urge you all to listen to the oh, full. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's, brilliant. it's brilliant. The speed with which that man is talking is but just the, the, staggering. The verbal, uh, the verbal ticks are hilarious. Yeah. Daniel Harris tweeted it. I'm sure it's, you can find it elsewhere, but uh, you can definitely find it on his, on his Twitter feed. But, you know, maybe he's right. You know, in terms of this being the season when it does finally go, I mean, how can this... We always think Arsenal are, are, are looking weak. Arsenal are the ones that are the soft underbelly of the top four, and they always are in there. They, someone else always manages to have a worse season uh, of the kind of bigger clubs. But I just wonder this season. I think the two matchup clubs are going to be there. I mean, I say that now. We could be maybe there's going to be a, a meltdown, you know, a Mourinho meltdown. That could always happen. But I think those two matches because of there. Chelsea and Liverpool are both strong, and then you've got Tottenham. You've got I don't know. I think it's. I think he he could be he could be right. You mentioned the Man City, the Manchester clubs, and Man City looked impressive. Four one win away to Stoke at the weekend. John Bruin is watching this. John, are you putting this all down to the Pep Guardiola impact? Well, I think for for what is you know a work in progress, it's been pretty damn impressive so far. Um, you know, goals coming throughout the team. Sergio Aguero looking back to his best. Um, players like new signings like Nolito making a contribution. Um, I think there was a little bit of confusion of the tactics to get in the game against Sunderland in the first match, but already it's beginning to look like a very slick machine. Um, what was the confusion? What, what, what confusion did they have to work through there? Well, I think, I think there was this thing, wasn't there, where the full-backs were playing in centre midfield, um, which is obviously something that he did with Philip Lahm at, uh, at Bayern. Um, but, you know, we in England are traditionalists and don't really understand things like this. 
And um, but yeah, you know the, the complicated patterns and uh, tactical switches that Guardiola makes that you know that he prepares so uh, rigidly for. Um, they're going to be a big feature of the season. But so far, I mean, they haven't played the strongest opposition. I think the big test comes on uh, 10th of September when they actually play United. But uh, so far, so good. And uh, they were my tip for, to win the title and seeing nothing so far to make me change that opinion. Yeah, I mean, uh, Guardiola was saying, you know, I've heard a lot about this Stoke game. And I was thinking this is this is not like the old Stoke game. This is nothing like the game that people were saying you wouldn't be able to handle. It was They were, they were kind of ideal opponents but I wondered um, John what your opinion is we, we were speaking last week about Joe Hart uh, and, and his situation there is that done that situation is he is he definitely out of there um, any indication yet of whether he's joining Everton or someone else well I think Everton appears to be the favourite I think I think Hart's problem is beyond Everton I don't really see many vacancies for goalkeepers um, or, or, or I mean it has to be it has to be said interests in his particular goalkeeping talents, it's not as it's not as though. I mean, everyone's got a goalkeeper, but some teams are are are, are willing to consider an upgrade. His problem is that nobody sees him as an upgrade. Yes, I mean, I mean, a, a name that rings out to me there is Liverpool uh, with Simon Mignolet. Um, they did sign a goalkeeper, though. They did, yes, but he's injured at the moment, isn't he? So presumably, Jurgen Klopp um, fancies. That he he might provide the answer to a, a question that really needs answering at Liverpool, but um, what I was going to say was that I actually think Hart is quite a similar goalkeeper to, to Simon Mignolet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, uh, what, what can we say about Joe Hart? Um, this isn't the first time that somebody has tried to make Joe Hart feel uncomfortable about life at Manchester City. I mean, Willie Caballero, who's currently playing for City was brought in and Manuel Pellegrini, the previous manager, said, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to try and job share the, t- the, the two. But eventually Hart came through for Pellegrini and played. The thing is, you speak to Manchester City fans, they would say that he hasn't really ever let the team down in, you know, on a regular basis. There are mistakes. Um, I think he probably makes more mistakes for England than he did for City. But there is something about Joe Hart that means that it is dispensable to uh, maybe the the, the 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 Latin manager. That there's something about him that doesn't seem to quite click with them. Well, I was thinking about this, uh, and I figured that Joe Hart is. I mean, you can see the City fans. Some of them still obviously support him and, and like the idea of him and don't want him sold and are fond of him. Uh, and this idea that he was one of the leaders of the team, and I tell you, he was. He was one of the most vocal, most visible players in that team he was he was a kind of the a guy who would front up and take great pride in doing so he was a guy who'd stick his chest out posture demonstrate passion and the important thing about all that is that it never ever ever seemed to make the team play any better in fact he was the leader of a team that appeared to be a leaderless rabble and as such it seems not just uh, that he's dispensable but that it's imperative he should go yes Yes. Um, as I say, I think there's a, there's a certain culture clash there. I mean, to, to, to be even-handed towards Joe Hart, um, the other purported leaders of that team, who would be Yaya Toure, um, whose form was hugely indifferent last season and has been actually quite a lot of the time uh, over the last two or three years, um, and Vincent Company is always injured. So um, Hart had to, I suppose, 
take up that role. Um, and he always does TV, uh, to, speaks to the TV cameras, though doesn't speak to us written journalists, uh, a little thing. He tends to blaze past, headphones on. Um, oh, you, like guys, the... yeah, you guys will twist his words, John, you know. On, on, on TV, he just wants to... He wants to get his message out there accurately. And, you know, not you personally, of course, John, but uh, <laughs> some of well, your ilk might twist the words to suit their agenda. Well, absolutely, yes. I do think that, yeah, there's a certain chippiness to Joe Hart, uh, which may well be one of the sources of his problems. Um, if if uh, a manager comes in who is known for liking uh, his team to play from the back and the goalkeeper to be an extra footballer, I mean, I, I, I'm sure other people have mentioned this, but wouldn't you practice the skills and see how you could go with it? You know, left foot, right foot, all that type of thing. That doesn't appear to have been the case. Um, now, obviously, he was playing for England at, at Euro 2016, which possibly required totally different disciplines. But I, I do wonder if Joe Hart's helped himself at all in this situation. And um, I suppose another issue to consider with his transfer is that... Um, his deal, I suspect, has got two or three years to run and he's very well paid. And clubs don't actually like paying goalkeepers a lot of money. Well, traditionally, not anyway. Yeah, just on the leadership issue at City, actually, it's, a, it's an interesting one because you see the type of person who Jose Mourinho was brought into Manchester United. You know, Zlatan Ibrahimovic being the prime example. Pogba. And I saw Pogba's interview with Thierry Henry before the game the other day. Wow. Pogba is a big personality. I think we can all agree on that one. At, a, at still a relatively young age. We know what Zlatan's like. Guardiola maybe doesn't necessarily want the same type of person. I don't know, the Barcelona, at Barcelona, obviously, he, you know, the big guys in the dressing room were Xabi, who essentially was his successor, Iniesta, who would have always idolised him, I assume, Messi, to a certain extent, maybe as well, having grown up at Barcelona, there would have been a certain image of Pep Guardiola there. So even though they were big, big guys and I'm sure had their opinions, he could maybe control it to... Uh, to an extent, do you think that there's a different model that he likes a slightly different model, more uh, collective, I guess, at, at Manchester City compared to relying on the leadership of one or two hugely vocal uh, voices? Yeah, almost certainly. I mean, to use Bayern, I mean, him and Bastian Schweinsteiger didn't get on too great over there, did they? So there's another example of a, you know, a big totemic figure that Guardiola eventually sidelined. Um, yeah, I mean, if you actually flick through the transfer business of United and City, City have actually spent more money than uh, Manchester United, which is hard to believe considering the, you know, the, the 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 big signings that United have made and the, that big that box office qualities that that those players have. But the players he's brought in, Leroy Sané, Nolito, players like that, they're cogs in the machine. They're not superstars. Um, you know, obviously, he had Lionel Messi at, at Barcelona. You know, a player that you have to make room for in your team. But it's all to be the cog in the machine, the Guardiola philosophy, uh, where he is the star. Although I'm sure he would say that, that you know the team is the star. And um, City, uh, I am told, uh, are a little concerned. Not, not. You know, but the fact is that Manchester United have, have become box office again. They've become FC Hollywood of Manchester, um, and no one's that interested in Manchester City but in City, media terms. I mean, City can't really compete on that score. Anyway, I mean, you know, whatever about the the argument, 
you know, in terms of the old argument about who Manchester's team really is. And, you know, I guess there's, there's plenty of fans of both clubs in Manchester, but there's no question that, you know, beyond the city, Manchester United are the team that a lot more people are interested in. They've got a lot more supporters, you know, whether you want to call those people real supporters, you know, who knows. But there's a lot more Man United fans about than there are Manchester City fans outside Manchester. There's no way that Man City can can be... They, it's wrong of them even to worry about competing on that scale. The only thing they need to be worried about is competing on the field, finishing ahead of Manchester United in the league. You know, if they do that, then over time, things might change. Yeah, your logic is, 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 is absolutely right, Ken. But that doesn't mean to say that they don't have ambitions to be bigger than United. And they, they do... They're at the, you know, there is a concern that United are taking away the headlines when they've signed the best manager in the world. And there is, a, there is this sense I get from uh, Manchester City and some of the supporters that they think or they see that the way that United have gone about their business. in, in They got Mourinho, who's the anti-Guardiola. They signed Ibrahimovic, who's a guy that's fallen out with Guardiola in the past. And various things like that that they think are pointing at the fact that United are trying to mirror City, and um, I mean it makes it make for a great rivalry if such a you know such a narrative continues. But it, 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 I think there's a sense that Mourinho being in town has perhaps stolen a little of the thunder of you know that great coup of getting Pep Guardiola to go to Manchester. All right, John, lovely to chat to you. Thanks a million. Cheers, lads. I think we've referenced this Paul Pogba interview enough uh, at this stage. I don't want to over-egg <laughs> this being the most, uh, you know, the most impactful interview in sports broadcasting history or anything like that. But it was, it was a nice insight into him. Let's have uh, listened. This was him being asked about one of his very high-profile teammates. He has to say something about my shoes, about my hair, about <laughs> and the way he talks to, you know? I know. Zlatan Ibrahimovic. <laughs> like... like I am Zlatan. I hope when you're gonna see this, you're gonna. <laughs> hope when you're gonna see this, you're gonna think about me. Henri going full Bart Simpson while listening to Homer Simpson's uh, stand-up routine. There, he makes uh, Zlatan sound a little bit like Matt Damon in Team America, uh, judging by the uh, judging by the content of his of his dressing room chat. Although the you know the vans are about clothes and shoes, you know. Well, um, I suppose it is a bit of fun. I mean. Because Paul Pogba's got a lot. Of, it's, I'd say he offers more scope for interesting things to say about his clothes and shoes than most of us do. Mm. You know, he's just he's 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 providing more that you could bounce off. Yeah, Ma- you know, maybe it's maybe they talk about other things as well besides what they're wearing. I'm Anything? sure they do. Yeah, they probably do. That's it for the today's Irish Times Seconds Football Podcast. We have another show out which includes. So much going on. What were we talking about? We're talking about Castor Semenya, yeah. The uh, Olympic champion at 800 metres now. This was uh, obviously created a storm which was brewing anyway, but this this sort of ethical and physiological minefield that everybody in the sport is trying to tiptoe around. So we talked a lot about that, this uh, hyper-androgenic woman competing without any limit on testosterone. The IWF did have a limit in there at the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled that actually you can't do that. So she competed, she won, and uh, even a couple of her competitors, a couple of the the other medalists were being asked about this issue, even though they don't identify as uh, being hyper-androgenic women, they were still being asked questions 
uh, as though that is in fact what they what they are. So uh, a lot of interesting stuff in that chat with Ross Tucker. We also talked about Conor McGregor. The King is back. So says the King. And there was Gaelic football chat. Yeah, the Tipperary. I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too. Don't forget that. And we talked the Tipperary being beaten by Mayo. And I nearly forgot John Delaney there. Talked a little bit about his name popping up in uh, connection with events in Rio over the last couple of days. So quite a lot there, I think. Thanks, mm. Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Kenny. Thanks a million for listening. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.